This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Matthew chapter 8, we're looking this morning at verses 28 through 34. Matthew 8, 28 through 34. Hear the word of God. And when he, Jesus, came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Let's pray. Our Father, open to us now in this early hour of the day your word that we might learn from you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew continues to describe the advance of the kingdom of heaven. Remember, John the Baptist came heralding its arrival. And then Jesus himself took up his public ministry after his ordination to ministry by his public baptism, after his being tried by Satan in the wilderness. And in the end of chapter 4, Matthew sets out in summary form what the coming of the kingdom looks like. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 through 7, he spells out for us the various themes on which Jesus spoke. And the Sermon on the Mount could well be a synopsis of one speaking opportunity that Jesus had, uh, as a summary of one sermon, as well as maybe taking some themes from other Uh, other times that Jesus spoke, but giving us a sample of the kinds of things that Jesus spoke about in his teaching ministry, in his word ministry. And that's a part of the coming of the kingdom. Anywhere that Christians have gone, they have emphasized the teaching and the preaching of God's word. They would quickly set up a church for meeting and have someone to preach, and they would set up a school to teach their children so that they are literate with the foremost goal of literacy being that they might be able to read God's word for themselves. But the coming of the kingdom had another side to it, and that's the physical side, what we today would describe as mercy ministry, reaching out to people by meeting their physical needs. Now, when the kingdom came in the person of Jesus, Satan's kingdom was rolled back in terms of its lies, That held grip on people's minds. But it also came in terms of rolling back Satan's hold on people and the effects of this fallen world on people 
by taking care of various physical ailments. And we've already seen something of that in the power of Jesus, the power of the kingdom through various healings that we have seen in chapter 8, the healing of the leper, the healing of the centurion's servant, the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. And then we saw the power of Jesus in addressing this violent storm that had arisen on the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus speaks to it, and he's speaking to nature as such. But we also want to recognize that the destructive power of creation, whether it's a storm on the Sea of Galilee, or a destructive hurricane, or a tornado, these kinds of things are also evidence of a fallen world, that we live in a world that's broken, a world where things like that can happen. And Jesus, as part of the advance of the kingdom, reduces, in fact, removes this destructive storm so that they're in a calm. And they, they ask the question, a question that's meant to ring in our minds, who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? But, you know, we read also in chapter 4 as well as in the middle of chapter 8 that part of Jesus' ministry included relieving those oppressed by demons, casting out spirits with a word. And we have an instance of that now in the passage that is before us. You'll recall that back earlier in chapter 8, in verse 18, with this great crowd around him, Jesus gives word that he would like to go over to the other side, to the east bank of the Sea of Galilee. And so they do. Of course, the storm occurs as they are on their way. And then we pick up in verse 28, when he came to the other side, that would be the east side of the Sea of Galilee. They've arrived at their destination. And they come to what uh, Matthew calls the country of the Gadarenes. Uh, this is, uh, Gadara was a town of uh, the Decapolis region, these ten cities in that area. It was about midway up the bank of the Sea of Galilee on the eastern side. And, uh, Mark and Luke refer to the Gerasene region. The town of Gerasa was also nearby in that same province. Uh, so either town would be a suitable one to refer to as a reference for the vicinity in which Jesus found himself when they arrived on the other side. They're in this this province, this province rather, of Gadara. And when they arrive there, a very strange event happens. Now, as Matthew records it here for us, first of all, we see that this incident reveals to us the identity of Jesus. But as events unfold, it shows us again, as other passages have, the power of Jesus, and that it ends by uh, making us think some about the value of Jesus. So first of all, as Matthew uh, describes this, it reveals to us the identity of Jesus, although again with a certain twist, as we'll see. Well, they arrived there, and two demon-possessed men met him. Now, if you know your Bible, and they're familiar with Mark's account or Luke's account, Mark chapter 5, Luke chapter 8, you'll say, wait a minute, they only mention one man. Here, Matthew's talking about two men. The Bible's got a contradiction, right? Well, no, not really. Uh, there could well have been even more. It doesn't say only two men. It doesn't say only one man. If there were two men, then certainly there was one man. There is no formal contradiction here whatsoever. And in fact, it seems that often the Bible refers to the one speaking while other people may have been present and may have been involved as well. Matthew refers here to two demon-possessed men, and in the midst of those tombs there may have been others. 
who come down to meet them, coming out of the tombs. These would be uh, more like caves, not, not a cemetery like out here, like we would think of it, but uh, a region of hills, caves, burial, crypts, uh, sometimes with an antechamber that these men might take shelter in to get out of the elements. Uh, but at any rate, uh, an unclean place, not a place that would be frequented by people, a place uh, of some seclusion. And it says that they are so fierce that no one could pass that way. Uh, Matthew, or rather Mark, tells us that they shriek, they would howl. You could imagine passersby hearing them running among the tombs, howling in their agony and attacking those who came that way. In fact, uh, Mark tells us that others had come and tried to bind them, but they were able to break the uh, fetters that held them. And they were such a threat that people avoided that area. But here they come. Now, we read demon possession, read about that in the Bible, and think, what do we think about that? Well, it's a somewhat mysterious thing. It, it really is, I think, inappropriate to think of it so much as a demon filling someone as if a person's body was a hollow shell and the demon just gets inside you and takes control. But certainly there is an element of control. It might be akin to the way that we would be filled with the Holy Spirit and led and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Uh, but in this case, it's a very unholy spirit that comes into someone. Some today would say, well, we know better. We, what, what we know is epilepsy probably was what they thought of as demon possession, that erratic behavior, even frightening behavior. Well, the Bible itself uh, and others in the same time period make a distinction between physical illness and particularly epilepsy and demon possession. In fact, Matthew does that at the end of chapter 4. He does that also in chapter 8, verse 16. He cast out the spirits with a word and he healed all who were sick. A distinction is made between healing illness and casting out demons. The Bible is not confused here. It's not just first century ignorance. Let's give them some credit but rather the taking possession of a person by demonic spirit. There was a, uh, a pastor who got a call to come to the church for an emergency, and when he got there, he found one of the church leaders had a woman who, by all appearances, was demon-possessed. He could hardly control her. In fact, the two of them could hardly restrain her. They got her in the pastor's office, and uh, she demonstrated extraordinary strength in flipping over a large steel desk, and strange behavior and speaking of, in a voice that very obviously was not hers. And you're thinking, you know, is this, is this you know, something taking place in a, in a foreign mission field? Is this, is this the aftermath of, a, uh, of an overwrought Pentecostal worship service? You know, is this something on late night TBN? Uh, no. The, the, the elder was, uh, the leader was an elder at uh, Christ Community Church, or Grace Community Church in, in Sun Valley, California. The pastor was John MacArthur, one of the most rational and sane and biblically grounded men you'll ever hear. And they began trying to speak to the demon, trying to get the demon to come out, trying to get the demon to tell it's his name. They did that for two hours. And they finally started dealing with the woman rather than the demon. And 
got the woman to start confessing her sins. They just asked her to confess every sin she knew of. And she began to speak of things and reveal just the uh, depraved life she had led, the hypocrisy, the sin, uh, and all of these things. And after a time, she began to calm down and was subdued and never had problems with demons after that. This is a very real thing. We don't experience it so much in the United States, I think, because the kingdom has been so strong in the United States, because of the influence of Christ in the United States. But as that is being lost as people are turning not so much to Christianity, but spirituality, not Christianity. Uh, there's more and more an openness. And I think we may see more and more of this kind of thing that foreign missionaries have encountered more frequently than we have. But it is a very real thing. Can a Christian be possessed? No. How can, how can a demon come in alongside the Holy Spirit? I don't think so. But certainly unbelievers and those who are dabbling in the occult uh, and, and Eastern meditation are opening themselves up to demonic influence, if not demonic possession. But that's what Jesus and his disciples encounter here. And they, say, and they speak to Jesus. They cry out, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? Us. Remember Jesus asks their name, as Mark records it, and they say, Our name is Legion, for we are many. Not just one spirit, but many spirits are involved here. But they say, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Well, look, they're confessing Jesus as the Son of God, right? Well, yes, they are, because they know who Jesus is. However, it might be somewhat sobering to realize that the description of Jesus as the Son of God has occurred now three times in Matthew. Twice from the tongue of the devil, if you are the son of God, and once from these demons. In fact, in Matthew, Jesus is referred to as the son of God eight times. Only twice from people who are acknowledging him as deity. The other times from evil. One one time it's Matthew 14 where they're in the boat and Jesus calls Peter to walk to him. Uh, on the water, Peter gets out, walks, and then he sinks, and they get in, and they arrive at the land, and they say, surely this is the Son of God. And then the second time is in Matthew 27, when, when Jesus is, is dying, when he dies at his crucifixion, and there's the earthquake, and all of this leads the centurion, a Roman centurion again, and others with him to say, surely this man was the Son of God. But the other six times, it occurs as demons, or the devil, is acknowledging who Jesus is. Jesus' identity. This points us to what James says in James chapter 2, that familiar verse in in 19, uh, James 2.19, where uh, James says, you you believe that God is one. That's great. You've got your doctrine lined up just right. But you know, even the devil believes that. Even the demons believe that, and they tremble. It's not enough just to know Jesus' identity. So far, Jesus has been identified three times as the Son of God, twice by the devil, once by demons. You know, we ask our children, who is Jesus? So he's the Son of God. Hmm, Child must be a Christian. Well, maybe, hopefully, maybe not. Ask adults, who is Jesus? Well, he's the Son of God. Hmm, seems pretty well grounded. Well, so far, we've gotten diabolical confessions of Jesus as the Son of God, and that's it so far in Matthew's Gospel. You see, it's not enough just to acknowledge Jesus' identity. Matthew Henry, the Puritan uh, 
preacher and a commentator known for his commentary today, Matthew Henry commentary, says it's not knowledge, but love that distinguishes saints from devils. Do you love Jesus? Not just do you know he's the Son of God, but do you love him? Do you follow him? Is he precious to you, as Peter says? And so we find here first Jesus' identity. Now the demon is right. But Jesus doesn't need the demons confessing him as a witness to who he is. But the devil certainly knows who Jesus is. These demons certainly know who Jesus is. They recognize him immediately. And then that brings us to the second thing that Matthew talks about here, the identity of Jesus, but then also the power of Jesus. Because what, what do they say? They don't just say, oh, you're the son of God. They say, what have you to do with us, oh, son of God? What are you doing here? They must seem startled to see him. But notice what they go on to say. Have you come here to torment us before the time? There's fear. It's Jesus. What's he doing here? Referring back to John MacArthur, it was kind of amusing as he describes the story in his book, The Sufficiency of Christ. He says that when the woman saw him, this demonic voice says, Oh no, not him, not him, anyone but him. Get him out, get him out. MacArthur said he was at least realized, uh, relieved to, to know that the demons recognized he was not on their side. <laughs> well, even a stronger reaction here when the Son of God himself shows up. Have you come here to torment us before the time? What time? Well, the day of judgment. You see, Satan and his demons know they are a defeated force, that their time is short, that their end is coming. Have you come to torment us before the time, before the time that we were expecting to be cast into the lake of fire forever under the wrath and justice of God? Was it before the time? Well, it was certainly before the day of judgment, which has yet to arrive. But you see, when the kingdom of heaven comes, it's a, it's a continuing thing. It's a progressive thing. The kingdom came with Jesus' arrival. The kingdom came with Jesus' death and resurrection. The kingdom comes even more when the Holy Spirit is poured out on the church. The kingdom comes even to this present day as the gospel goes out into the world. And as men and women and children surrender to Jesus and follow him or harden their own hearts by rejection of the gospel. Because you see, the word is always at work. It's either drawing men to Christ or it's hardening them in their rebellion against Christ. The time is coming, but the time has already come. And their hold on people, Satan's work, is beginning to be undone. That's part of the point of the miracles that Jesus does. The power that he demonstrates is that he is taking back turf from Satan. And Satan's, not only his hours are limited, but his turf is receding. His power is diminishing. The Lord Jesus is taking back his world from Jesus, And he would do, do so through the cross, but the power of the miracles demonstrate that Satan's reign is coming to an end. And that's the way that they say, have you come here to torment us before the time? Now, Mark, uh, Matthew notes, verse 30, that there's a herd of pigs feeding there at some distance. And the demons beg him, saying, if you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. Pigs? This clearly identifies this as a predominantly Gentile region because 
Keeping pigs was not a kosher-approved Jewish activity. Far from it. Pigs were unclean. You didn't eat them. You couldn't keep them. You had nothing to do with them. There's this herd of pigs. Now, for their Gentile owners, they were a source of profit, a source perhaps of livelihood. They were valuable to them. But Jewish readers of this story and those who heard about it would kind of smirk at the destruction of all these pigs. It would be amusing to them because pigs were very much loathed. Bacon just wasn't on the menu. But when the pigs come up, the demons say, well, if you cast us out, if you're going, you know, they, they, they really are afraid. The Son of God is here. They recognize that they've been bad. They've been destroying, hurting these men in whom they dwell. And they say, well, if you're going to cast us out, at least send us into these pigs over there. Jesus says, go. Just a word. Be gone. Go. And they do. He said, well, why didn't Jesus just get rid of them? Why didn't he just destroy them completely? Because that day had not come. The day of the consummation of the kingdom has not come. We still live in a world where sin has its effects, where there is pain, where there is misery, where there is loss, where there is hurt. Jesus demonstrated the coming of the kingdom by healing, by casting out demons, but Jesus did not remove everybody's illness. When when Jesus finished his public ministry, the world was not a disease-free, lame-free, paralysis-free, demon-free place. And it won't be until his second coming. And so we don't expect the kingdom in its fullness here and now. But we do expect the kingdom to come. We do expect it to relieve human misery. We do expect it to to have a bearing on what goes on in this world, even as we recognize that with the weak there will always be tares, that with one healing there will always be people who die in their sickness. And so Jesus says, go. And they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. You see, the demons delight in bringing destruction. These men were miserable in their demon-possessed condition. They were were injured, they were hurt, they were bruised because of the actions of these demons. And then the demons demonstrate their destructiveness in what they did to this herd of pigs. But we see here the power of Jesus, just a word. And the forces of hell obey. And they recognize that their time is short. Well, then third, we come to the value of Jesus. We've looked at his identity as the Son of God, although confessed by the demons. We looked at his power over the forces of nature, which, by the way, or over the forces of hell, which should be an encouragement to us. And we dare not have this mentality that some seem to, that that the, the devil is kind of the equal opposite of God. The devil's a creature. The devil's under the power of God. They're not equals battling it out. Satan is destroyed. Through the cross, his power is broken. His days are numbered. The destruction he can cause is limited because the day of Christ is coming. So don't think in terms of the devil as God's bad equal. He's not. He's just a fallen creature. A powerful one, not one to be taken lightly, but a fallen creature nevertheless. Certainly no equal of God. But then we see the value of Jesus in verses 33 through 34. When this happens, these pigs go rushing down and plunge themselves into the lake and and drown. They destroy themselves under the influence of these demons. And the herdsmen who keep them fled. They went into the city. 
They told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. So they told everything, which would include the, the dialogue, the, the, the destruction of the animals, and what happened to the man, or to the men here, as Jesus relieved them of their demon possession. They, these men were known. To the, to the, they didn't have to explain to the dwellers in the city who these men were. These men were known. They were known to the townspeople, and they tell them what Jesus did and how he delivered them from these demon, formerly demon-possessed men. Verse 34, Behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Why? Well, Mark, Luke say they were afraid. Afraid of perhaps someone with this kind of power. Uh, They were perhaps afraid for other material Loss, but they ask Jesus to leave their region. You know, when I think about that, what comes to my mind is John chapter 4, where they all come out to see. Remember here it says uh, in Matthew 8, they, the city came out to meet Jesus. Remember John 4, the woman at the well, Jesus has this conversation with her and tells her about herself. You know, you've had five husbands, and the man you're living with now is not your husband. And they get into this discussion, and Jesus describes himself to her as uh, the water that gives eternal life. And she goes into the town and, and says, uh, you know, this man, come see this man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Verse 30, they went out of the town and were coming to him. People going out to meet Jesus because of what happened with this woman, because of her testimony. Well, here it's a similar situation. The, the herdsmen go into the town. They tell what's going on. The people come out. But whereas in John 4, many believed in him, here they say, Jesus, please leave. You're not welcome here. Go away. Maybe they were upset about the loss of the pigs. But what a trade. To trade pigs for eternal life. To trade pigs for the Son of God. To trade pigs for an opportunity to know and hear from the Savior whom God has sent into the world. You see, they were afraid of what Jesus might do. They were probably upset about the loss that they incurred because of the pigs. And they asked Jesus to leave because he's not welcome. That's startling. It's dismaying. And perhaps most of all because we know people like that. Maybe we have been people like that. We just assume Jesus leave us alone because we're afraid of what he might do and we're afraid or even annoyed by what he might cost us. And so we maybe politely, but nevertheless firmly say, Jesus, leave me alone. Go somewhere else. Well, that's what we find here. People who are asking Jesus to go away. You know, Matthew Henry said, it's not knowledge but love that distinguishes saints from devils. But he goes on to say in that same quotation, He is the firstborn of hell that knows Christ and yet rejects him and will not be subject to him and to his law. You, under this pulpit, have heard of Christ. You know Christ. You know who he is. You know what he's come to do. You know what his claims are on you. And to reject him with what you know is to make yourself a firstborn of hell. Because that's all that is left if you ask Jesus to leave. Is hell. Now, Matthew does not include the detail of what happens with the man. 
Mark and Luke do, that the man who was freed of this demon, in a happy contrast to the townspeople, said to Jesus, I want to go with you. I want to follow you. They wanted to go. And Jesus says, no, stay here, go back to your homes, and tell how much God has done for you. Go back and bear witness to the goodness of God in this town. Because maybe, if not through Jesus' direct action, maybe through this man's witness, the hearts of the townspeople would be softened, that the grace of God would come to them, in spite of the rejection of Jesus at this point, that through his witness, they might come to know Jesus, might come to trust in Jesus. We don't know. It's left open-ended. But it is interesting that whereas Jesus called some to come and follow him, one here who volunteers to follow him, Jesus says, no, you stay where you are. You return to your life back in the town now that you're demon-free and be a faithful witness where you are of how much God has done for you. We dare not ask Jesus to leave, but rather we follow Jesus. And that, for most of us, would include just staying where we are, doing what we were already doing, and bearing faithful witness to what God has done for us. And so as we look at this passage, we're re- revealed, it reveals to us the identity of Jesus as the Son of God, the power of Jesus over Satan and over his hosts, but also the tremendous value of Jesus. He's worth losing everything for. He is that pearl of great price that we would be willing to trade anything for if only we might gain that one thing and having that one thing be wealthy beyond measure. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this passage. And Lord, we praise you that you are powerful, even over Satan, even over the hosts of hell. That you merely speak the word and they do it. Lord, Satan is a fearful foe, but we flee him. We resist him. We turn to you because your power is more than a match for his. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.